Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 22. I'll begin in verse 6 and read to the end of the chapter and the end of the book. John wrote, And the angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by its gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Please be seated. So here at the end of the book of Revelation, let's remember the beginning once again, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. The revelation of Jesus Christ. So word pictures, portraits in writing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And not just portraits of our Savior, but portraits of our Savior in his state of exaltation. One of the very first of those portraits that we saw was in chapter 1, verse 8, where we read, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. It's fitting then that one of the last portraits that we find in Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, would be very nearly the same here in our text this morning. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
if you're ever listening to someone teach online or anywhere, it's not uncommon these days that you'll hear someone say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. He most certainly did many, many times in the Gospels and in the book of Revelation. Here's one of those times. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the Almighty. And then Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There cannot be two who are Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. Jesus Christ is God. And truly, he is the beginning of this book, and he is the end of this book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which we have been considering together in this study. He is the author. Chapter 1, verse 1, he made it known. He, Jesus, made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. And he is the finisher. Chapter 22, verse 6, and he, Jesus said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. He is the beginning and end of all things, but he is the beginning and end of this book. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the author and finisher of this book. He is the protagonist, and he is the point, the purpose for the whole story Anything else that we may have discovered or come across as we have gone through this book has been incidental because it was all there to point to Jesus Christ. Even the antagonists in this story, the great red dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, those creatures, those beings who frightened so many people, they were not presented to us to frighten us in any way. They were presented only so that we could see how easily they were dispatched and done away with by the word of God, by the sword that proceeds from the mouth of the Lamb, who is the Lion, who is the Lord. But there are other similarities between chapter 1 of Revelation and chapter 22. Here in 22, verse 6, we are told, And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And of course they are. This is the word of God. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And in chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus was portrayed as the faithful witness, the faithful one who proclaims the truth. Even so, his word is trustworthy and true. Even the part, maybe especially the part, where In this revelation, according to chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus was speaking to his servant John to show his servants the things that must soon take place. A statement repeated verbatim, as we have seen in chapter 22, verse 6. And the Lord God, the spirit of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And soon means, well, soon. It means quickly, as in, for the time 
is near. As John wrote in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. But remember, he wrote that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3 to his first century audience. He wrote to people who lived almost 2,000 years ago, for the time is near. And that audience was defined for us. It's defined for us here in chapter 22 as his servants, or more specifically in verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Now, which churches? Well, let's have Scripture interpret Scripture for us. Chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. We spent the first two months of this series looking at seven first century churches, congregations that existed back in the day that John wrote, real people in a real time and a real place. And it was to them that John said, the time is near. It is to them originally that Jesus said, I am coming soon. When Jesus said the time is near in chapter 1, verse 3, he was speaking through John, but he was speaking to the seven churches that are, present tense, at the time that John was writing in Asia. And the thought is repeated here at the end of the book as well. In chapter 22, verse 10, John wrote, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. A statement that would have been more than a little misleading when John wrote it, if the time would actually have been at least 2,000 years into the future. Just saying. Of course, we've addressed all of this before. And maybe it doesn't seem all that important. Maybe, as some have suggested, John was simply using words like soon and at hand and the time is near to convey imminence. As if what John was really saying was this could literally happen at any time from right this second until thousands of years into the distant future which would mean that if it was soon then, but didn't happen, then it must be even sooner now from our perspective. The thing is, this isn't just the word or the speculations of the Apostle John. And by the way, I just want to say that I would be inclined to trust the speculations of the Apostle John far more than any of his modern-day interpreters. But this isn't his word. It's not his imagination. This message was conveyed to John and through him to the churches of first-century Asia Minor by the Lord, the God, the Spirit of the prophets. Remember? The Lord, the God, the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Furthermore, he goes on in the very next verse to say, and behold, I am coming soon, just in case they didn't get it before. 
And it's in that light, because he was coming soon and very soon from the perspective of those first century saints that he went on to say, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And they were blessed. They were blessed in their desire to see Jesus come bringing judgment on those who persecuted them and bringing blessing and growth to the church that he had established in his name. Now, of course, the blessing pronounced in verse 7 is for us too, as we will see in just a few moments. But it was, first of all, for those first century saints in the midst of their struggle. It was a word that was meant to encourage and give hope not for some murky, distant future that was still millennia away, but hope for them right there in their time and their place. As one of my old college profs used to say, in the nasty now and now, as they were experiencing it, not merely in the sweet by and by. But then or now, this is the word of the Lord. And that means there is covenantal certainty to this promise that is found both at the beginning and again at the end of the book. Chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Why? For the time is near. And again in chapter 22, verse 7, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This is the promise of God. And as I may have mentioned once or twice before, God always keeps his promises. Now, we've seen this blessing as we have journeyed along through this book. We've seen the various forms that it would take. Jesus said that those who conquered, who persevered and overcome, those who kept the words of the prophecy of this book would stand with the Lamb on Mount Zion. And they would have his name and his father's name and the name of the city of his God written on their foreheads. They would be sealed as those who have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He said they would be made pillars in the temple of God. They would have a permanent place in his church. They would be given hidden manna for food. And in chapter 22, verse 14, he said, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by its gates. Think back to the book of Genesis when Adam and Eve, our first parents, fell from their state of innocence. Remember, they had to clothe themselves, and they tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves, and it wasn't good enough. God had to give them clothing. And even that clothing wasn't good enough for them to remain in that sanctuary garden. He took them to the gate on the east side, and he sent them out into the world. Well, now Jesus is saying, those who have come to God through faith in him, those who have washed their robes in his blood and made them white, have the right to enter the city, to come back in to that sanctuary garden and to partake of the tree of life. And that's where we come in. 
Because just like the lion is the lamb and the lamb is the Lord, the church is the bride and the bride is the city. And we who have trusted in Christ alone, we who have been saved by grace through faith, have entered that city. We have washed our robes and we have been given the right to the tree of life. So far from this preterist understanding, rendering the revelation of Jesus Christ irrelevant because its prophecies were mostly fulfilled in the past, just think of that. That would mean that the book of Isaiah is pretty much irrelevant to us because pretty much all of its prophecies were fulfilled in the past. It's not what prophecy is for. And it doesn't render this book irrelevant. It means that we live in the fulfillment of the times that John was speaking of. And the implications are vast and amazing. We live in that city, the holy city, Jerusalem that is above, descending out of heaven from God. As the Apostle Paul said, our citizenship is there. In fact, we, the church, the body and the bride of the Lamb, are that city that is descending out of heaven from God. Again, go back to the book of Genesis. So many of these references in Revelation take us there. And in Genesis chapter 11, the people of the earth after the flood had said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. But seeing their pride, God canceled that public works program. He scrambled their languages and he did exactly what they were afraid of. He dispersed them over the face of the earth. The writer of the Hebrews tells us we are not looking for a city that was built by human beings. We are looking for a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God himself. And God is building that city with even a tower, but not a tower built by men to attempt to reach heaven from earth, a tower that reaches from heaven to earth coming down the other way. Remember that city we looked at? It's four square, 12,000 miles on a side and also the same height. Basically a city that fills the world and reaches to the heavens. And into that city, God is gathering people of every language and tribe. It's the reverse of what he did at Babel when people thought to take heaven by storm. He is taking this earth, and he is gathering a people to himself. All of those of different languages who were dispersed across the face of the earth. In this same sense, the great high mountain on which John was standing spiritually while he received this final vision is the antitype of both Mount Sinai and Mount Zion in the Old Covenant. But the imagery here takes us even further back, not just to Revelation chapter 1, but all the way to the first chapters of Genesis, where God created a man in his own image, and he placed him in Eden, not so that he could while away the time by puttering about in the garden. 
have this notion sometimes that Adam and Eve were meant to just be gardeners. But that's not what God told them. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So had the first Adam actually been faithful to his calling, the boundaries of Eden would have grown year by year. And the boundaries of the kingdom over which he was given stewardship would have expanded from that garden sanctuary at the center of the world to the very ends of the earth. That was Adam's purpose. That's what he was called to do. Of course, the first Adam was not faithful. The first Adam was disobedient and he fell into sin. But the last Adam, Jesus Christ, was faithful. And the imagery of Revelation is telling us that the old has passed away and that he is making all things new and that the kingdom of Jesus Christ comes as he continually pushes the boundaries outward. And he will do that until the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That has been the promise of God all along, and that is in fact what we pray for whenever we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's in that light I want you to think about the final words of the book of Revelation. Let me read verses 17 through 20 again, just to keep the context. Verse 17 begins with that amazing invitation. The spirit and the bride say, come. Not come, Lord Jesus, but come. Those of you who are outside, come, be gathered in. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. John goes on, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. We'll be talking more about this negative side in the Bible study this evening. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. It was a promise, and it was a promise that he kept. But consider John's response. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen, as we have learned from our own Heidelberg Catechism. This is sure to be. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. And John says, this is sure to be. And he follows it by his own prayer, come, Lord Jesus. Echoing his words in Revelation chapter 1. See the the book ending that goes on between chapter 1 and chapter 22. In chapter 1 verse 7, John wrote, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the land will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Even so, this is sure to be. 
Now, a lot of people in the church, including myself, we have often conflated these two texts, one from the beginning and one from the end of the book of Revelation. And we've merged them together into the prayer, even so, come Lord Jesus. And often that's a cry for deliverance from this present evil age and all of the troubles associated with it. I confess that very often if I'm watching or listening to news on the internet or on television, there is this temptation to pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus, just make it stop. But have we considered what that prayer would mean in a non-preterist context? And if you don't know what I mean by preterist, don't worry about it. Best estimates place the world's population today somewhere just barely south of 8 billion. And very optimistic estimates place the number of Christians at around one-fifth to one-quarter of that number. So think about that. 8 billion people in the world, 6 billion of whom at least, probably many more, who do not know or trust the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that if Jesus were to hear that prayer, even so, come Lord Jesus, and he were to come in that sense, right now, today, six billion plus people would meet the day of the Lord with absolutely no hope of eternal salvation. Some of these are friends and family members and other loved ones. So when we're tempted to pray, even so come Lord Jesus and think of it in that way, maybe we should remember that we actually have a task, a task that is unfinished. John did pray for Christ to come in judgment, but he prayed that prayer at a very specific and limited time and place. And he understood that when Christ came in judgment at that time, he would remove the things that could be shaken. And he would bring a kingdom that could not be shaken, a kingdom that would grow until it filled the whole earth and for those of us who live in that kingdom, and that is us, this must be our prayer. Whether we say, come Lord Jesus, or thy kingdom come, we're not praying that Christ would return and end it all and get us out of here before we have to suffer any more than we already have or die. Rather, we are praying that the gospel would be sent to the nations. And that that river of the water of life, which we saw last week, would flow from underneath the throne of God and of the Lamb down through the streets of the city, through the church of Jesus Christ and out to the very ends of the earth. And that all those who are thirsty, and there are still so many, at least six billion in our world, would come to recognize that life and hope and salvation are found in that river and that the day would come soon and very soon where the nations, having heard the word of the Lord and having turned to him, then the knowledge of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. In his book, Paradise Restored, David Chilton speaks of certain non-biblical apocalyptic literature 
You have to be careful with that term because the apocalyptists didn't call their own literature apocalyptic. It's modern-day people who have imposed that name on it, and we stole the word apocalypse from John, who said the revelation, the apocalypto, of Jesus Christ. Well, we stole the word apocalypse and we imposed it on these other extra-biblical writings. So they didn't consider themselves to be writing revelations. In many cases, they actually wrote in ways that were deliberately designed to obscure and to hide whatever their meaning may have been. David Chilton writes of them saying, their writings abound in pessimism. No real progress is possible, nor will there be any victory for God and his people in history. We cannot even see God acting in history. All we know is that the world is getting worse and worse, and the best that we can hope for is the end soon. But for now, the forces of evil are in control. Sound familiar? Could be the ancient Greek apocalyptists could be some of the people who have commented on the revelation of Jesus Christ. But Chilton goes on. John's approach in the revelation, and in fact the approach of all of the biblical prophets, is vastly different. The apocalyptists said, the world is coming to an end. Give up. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. The biblical prophets said, the world is coming to a beginning. Get to work. The book of Revelation is not meant to make us be afraid. It is not meant to make us despair. It's not meant to make us think everything in this world is just going to go worse and worse and worse until there's nothing left for Jesus to do except finally get up off of his throne at the right hand of God and come back and, and rescue us personally. That is not the point. John's point is not that the world is coming to an end. John's point was that the world was coming to a new beginning. Get to work. And in the end, this is the message I want to leave you with. I'll come back to it in a couple of weeks in my final sermon for not Revelation, but for this same Jesus series. But for this morning, the world has come to a beginning. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That verse is kind of the key verse to the whole book of Revelation. It comes at almost exactly the midway point between chapter 1 and chapter 22. The kingdom of this world, the kingdom of the world, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. He is making all things new. So let's get to work. We have good news to proclaim to the nations. The Spirit and the Bride, the Holy Spirit of God and the Bride, the Church of Jesus Christ, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. 
And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And as we go about fulfilling the mission of the church, John's very last word to those who read, hear, and keep the words of this prophecy, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is sure to be. May we pray. Father, your word declares that if anyone is in, a, in Christ, new creation, old things have passed away. All things have become new. And our Savior, Jesus Christ, declared that he is making all things new. And this kingdom, this world is now the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And Lord, we know that you will reign forever and ever. So help us with the promise of your presence and in the authority that you gave to our Savior Jesus Christ to do what we were told, to get to work, to go, to make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do, to keep all the things that you have taught us to keep, remembering that you are with us always and that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with us always, even to the very end of the ages. We pray in his name. Amen.